Spirit, help us. Uh, Please, Holy Spirit, grant to us ears to hear, eyes to hear, most especially this new heart that receives that which is true of Christ and believes. So help us now. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn, please, to Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah chapter 31. I want to read verses 31 uh, to verse 34 is all. Jeremiah chapter 31. Please. Hear the word of God. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I'll remember their sin no more. Now, you might wonder why this particular passage for Easter Sunday, that a resurrection Sunday, really, but why this particular passage? For those of you who are with us, you, you know that I've been preaching through Jeremiah for a few months now, so it shouldn't surprise you that we come here. Some years I do break from what I'm preaching if it doesn't really fit well with resurrection Sunday theme kind of thing. This is a special day for us. Special days are important. Special days are important in the context of our lives. Uh, we celebrate them, birthdays, anniversaries, and so forth. We celebrate them not just because of what happened on that day, but we celebrate them because what happened on that day informs every other day. So when we celebrate a birthday, we celebrate it because we're happy they're born. My kids seem to all have been born in March and April, so I call them this time of year and I tell them, I'm really glad you were born. And they go, well, okay. <laughs> but I am. I'm really glad they're born. That informs my life that they're born. Anniversaries, wedding anniversaries, most particularly, I suppose, those of us who are married remember those because that informs. That's an important day. It was an important day. It was an important event. It informs every other day in our life. We're not just happy that we got married on that anniversary day, but we should be happy all the other days uh, as well. Karen and I are coming up with an anniversary on Wednesday, uh, the anniversary of the day when she was unsedated and came out of her coma, or comma, as I like to say, just a brief pause, <laughs> and lived. And so we celebrate that, and it informs, you see, our lives, that event. In ancient Israel, there were days that informed the lives of the people, Passover. They remembered an event each year, and they said, this impacts our life. We were delivered. We were once slaves in bondage in, in, in Egypt, but now we are, have been set free by God. And they remembered that. That informed every day they should be thinking, Passover, it helps this day 
be it a Passover day or any other day during the course of the year, tabernacles, they remembered during this time of year when they celebrated the time that they were wandering through the wilderness and how God had protected them and fed them and all of that and kept them. And, and they, they, they celebrated that every year because that informed every other day. They said, God is our not only deliverer as in Passover, but also the one who protects and provides for us and gives us, grants to us all that we need. Pentecost was the day that they celebrated every year. It came to be a celebration, not only of the harvest and all of that, but a celebration of the giving of the law, the time when God had made them to be a people so that he could bless them in all kinds of ways and said they would, they would remember back to the days of Sinai. They would remember back to this Mosaic covenant. They would remember back when God had made them to be a nation and, and, and that informed everything about them. They said, we belong to God. That's who we are. We are his. In the same way, there are various events in the life of the church that we remember because they inform every other day. So we celebrate Christmas. It informs every other day that Christ has come. We celebrate Easter because it's that time when Christ has been resurrected. It informs every other day. In fact, it really informs this day. It informs every Sunday. Uh, We move from Saturday to Sunday worship because of the resurrection of Jesus because that was the day that the real eternal rest of God came to us that we believe in him and thus experience his rest. Know that we do indeed belong to him. So it moved from Saturday to Sunday because he rose on a Sunday that first day of the week. So Christians began to gather on that day to celebrate this resurrection of Jesus and not only that but it makes every Sunday special. In some sense this Sunday is a special Sunday of Sundays But not really. Because we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus every single Sunday, every single day. Now, as I said, because it's a special day, sometimes I I do vary from what I've been preaching through, you know, the general practice. We take up books of the Bible so that God can set the agenda week after week, uh, at least after I, I hope, led by him, choose that particular book for however long that takes us to get through. But many times I find, just as I read through and think through providentially, we come up to these special days and I just find that the passage that I happen to be coming up to, that I had planned to do next, is, is that passage that fixed for that particular day. For instance, last Sunday during Passover, you might remember Passover, during Palm Sunday, we both start with P's, during Palm Sunday... We, we took up this passage in Jeremiah 29 and another little piece in Jeremiah chapter 30 because, because on those passages are dealt with the promise that God had made to his people to bring them peace. You remember in these days, the days about which we're reading, that they were under God's curse, under God's judgment, and the people had been exiled, many, not completely yet. Jerusalem hasn't been yet completely destroyed. It will be, but it hasn't been completely destroyed yet. But the Babylonians have come on a couple of different waves, and they've exiled various ones. They've taken them out of Jerusalem and put them in faraway lands to try to disperse them in such a way as to destroy them. And so Jeremiah wrote them a letter, you may remember, and in that letter he writes to these exiles uh, this word of hope, that God is going to restore you to the land, that he is going to bring peace, that he's going to bring one like David ultimately who's going to be the one who rule over them. And then we began to think that through and realized that 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 did in part happen, that they were restored to the land, that the temple was indeed rebuilt. It wasn't rebuilt to the same glory that it had been, but it had been rebuilt. But still no king like David had come to rule over them. They were still uh, under the rule of another. And then on that Palm Sunday day, 
the king of peace rode into Jerusalem. And he was to fulfill all that had been promised concerning restoration. The king of peace, the son of David, would come. The temple would be rebuilt. The presence of of God among his people would exist in the context of the life of his people, in the context of his church. This Sunday, this passage of the new covenant fits perfectly with Resurrection Sunday. Because you see, it's the very resurrection of Jesus that establishes this new covenant. It's the very resurrection of Jesus that confirms this new covenant. Without the resurrection of Jesus, there would be no new covenant. It's this resurrection of Jesus that brings this new covenant into, into being. And what was wrong with the old one? Why did there need to be a new one? Well, as we, as we go through this old covenant, and the covenant that's old that's reflected here is the covenant that has been made with Moses. If you read through the Old Testament, you'll find a variety of covenants. Covenant with Adam. Covenant with Noah. Covenant with Abraham. Covenant with Moses. Covenant with David. So the word covenant is one that we use a great deal, especially as Presbyterian types. But we use it a lot. It's difficult, though, to get a handle on. It's difficult to define. Uh, we, we first think it as an agreement, but that's a little light, isn't it? Because we're talking about God here. We're talking about God and people here. We're talk- talking about an agreement, a relationship between God and his people. And so, so just to say that it's an agreement is, is a little light. To say that it's a contract is a little cold. It certainly is. There are parties to this. There are promises made, right? There are penalties if the promises aren't adhered to. There are perks if there are. So, so, so there's some sense of contract here. But again, we, we think of that. That's, that's a little cold. It's more than a contract. In fact, when God speaks of this covenant with his people, he puts it in the context of the, of the marriage metaphor. He says, it's like I'm your husband. We've been married together. So that's more than just a contract. When you get married, you don't simply say, well, I have a contract with this woman to be my wife. Oh, you could say that. You better duck. <laughs> but uh, it's, it's more than that. We know that. And thus, this covenant with God is more than just contract. Uh, treaties sometimes are referred to as covenants, especially in, in the Old Testament days. There were treaties between uh, suzerains, great kings, and vassals, lesser kings. And there would be treaties and there would be an agreement and it would be set up in such a way that there would be stipulations to that agreement, things that needed to be adhered to. And there again would be, would be blessings if you obeyed and curses if you were unfaithful and all of that. And, and this looks like that, this covenant as well. But again, it's more than just a treaty. There, there's something about this that's rich and deep because God is involved and he sovereignly administers his, his covenants to see that they're fulfilled in, in all of that. And so he has this covenant with with Moses that he makes. You remember on Mount Sinai where he gives uh, Moses the law. Moses, in a sense, is the mediator of the covenant. That is to say that he's the go-between between the people and God and God and the people. He's there on the mountain on, on their behalf and he brings it down to them, this, this law on tablets of stone. And he says, this we are to obey. And God gives ten really stipulations, primary ones foundational ones, and in one sense they all flow from the first. He says, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. He says, I've already delivered you. 
I've already shown to you my kindness. I've been merciful to you. I've already rescued you. I've shown my love to you. I'm that God. So therefore, you should be warm towards me already. You should be grateful to me already. I've done this. Now, I need you to know that you're to have no other gods before me. No other gods other than me. You're to worship me and to worship me alone. In fact, the other nine are just simply spelling that one out. That we're to have no other gods before him. And that's the primary, if you will, stipulation. Jesus would summarize this law later by saying that we're to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbor as ourselves. That's how it's laid out. Now in the midst of this covenant, God established a certain way by which he could live among his people because even though he gives this law to his people, he understands that they will fall away. They will sin against this law. So he makes a provision for their sin, for their offense. And he does it through priests and through sacrifices, through temples and all of that. And by way of priest, he has this one who, from the tribe of Levi, who will represent the people before God and who will also teach them. And sacrifices to say that when you sin, I will take your life, I'll take the life of another. And so year after year after year after year, sacrifices are made, century really after century, sacrifices are made in the whole midst of this so that God can live among his people. And it was a good covenant because it was made by God. But there's one flaw. The people. That was the problem. Notice how Jeremiah puts it. He says here, he says, <clears throat> So I'm going to make this new covenant, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke. See, they, they broke it. In fact, the author of Hebrews is a little more even blunt. In Hebrews in chapter 8, is the author of Hebrews is going to grab hold of this new covenant promise of Jeremiah and flesh it out. Um, he writes this, he says, for, this is verse 7, For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. So we ask the question, what was the fault of the new covenant? It wasn't God. Notice how he puts it. For he finds fault with them, when he says. In other words, it was the fault of the people. They sinned. We would understand that. We get that. We understand that. And they sinned against God. And so in the days of Jeremiah... And Jeremiah is prophesying, especially at this point in time, there are people in exile. They're now beginning to get it. They're beginning to get that God was serious about all of this. And if they were not faithful to him, then they would be cursed. There would be judgment that would come upon them. And that's where they're living right now, these people in the days of, of Jeremiah. Because you see, they took this law and they didn't o- obey it. They didn't follow after God. Their hearts weren't so inclined to follow after to follow after God. In fact, they even took the provision, the gracious provision of this covenant, the gracious provision of this law, where God says, I won't take your life, I'll take the life of another. They took that and they said, wow, that's great. We'll just kill these animals and go sin all the time. Rather than say, oh, let's follow after God who loves us. And so they experienced the curse of this of this covenant. And no matter how long this covenant was in place, it would simply be one that would be broken because it would be broken by the people. There was no provision in it to make certain that they, they obeyed. So then there's this new covenant now that comes. And it comes in our Lord Jesus. He's the new mediator of this covenant, not Moses. He's the one who stands before God on our behalf and stands before us on God's behalf. He's the mediator. He's the bridge builder. He's the one in between. He's the one reconciling, bringing, if you will, the parties uh, together. And you might remember on that fateful night, that night 
We celebrated last Thursday, a special night. A night upon which Jesus was betrayed. He was with his disciples. They were celebrating Passover, a great annual feast to remind them, to inform them that God is their deliverer. And there he was. He took bread, he broke it. And he gave it to them. And he said, this is my body, which is given for you. And then he took the cup. And then he said something that should have caused bells and whistles to go off in their heads. I don't know if it did. They may have been thinking of other things. It was such an odd night. But later they certainly would think of this. Jesus took the cup and he said, This is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. The new covenant. Jeremiah. This is the very thing that Jeremiah had spoken of. When God says, I'm going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel, a new covenant with the house of Jacob, uh, Judah. I'm going to bring them together and I'm going to make this covenant through them and here it is through them in the person of our Lord Jesus, this Israelite. Here he is and now they're making this, this new covenant. It's coming. And so at least later they'll be able to unpack this. What does that mean? What did Jesus do? Well, all of these things promised in the new in the new covenant. He would write, God would, his law within them and put it in their hearts. He would be their God. They would be his people. They would belong to him. There'd be no estrangement. There'd be reconciliation. There would be peace between the two. Not only that, but all of them, everyone in this covenant, all of them would know God. Not just a few, not just the special ones, not just the priests, not just the prophets, just not the kings who knew him well and then and mediated that information to the people. Not, not like that, but everyone would know, everyone would have experienced this relationship with God. They would all know him and they would all know sins forgiven. Let's unpack that just a bit. Let's start with the bottom because there's an interesting word in the very last bit, the last sentence of verse 34, and it's simply the word for or because. This is a causal thing. So the, so the last sentence sort of, sort of is the foundation of it all. Thus, everything builds on it. So we could build to it or build from it. I'd rather build from it. If you don't mind, maybe second service, I'll do it the other way. You can come back. But um, he says, for... I will forgive their iniquity and I'll remember their sin no more. He says, now there's a reason that all of you will know me and there's a reason that I'll be your God and you'll be my people and there's a reason that I'll put my law within them and write it on their hearts because for the ground of all of this is that I'm going to forgive their iniquity and I'll remember their sin no more. Jesus said, this is the new covenant in my blood shed for many For the forgiveness of sins. Jesus says, by what I'm doing, I'm going to bring forgiveness of sins. Now, in the old covenant, there was a sense of forgiveness, no question about that. But it was as if their sins were always before them, as if their sins were always remembered. Every year, there was a sacrifice on the Day of Atonement. Every year they would gather. Every year they would see the sacrifice. And every year they'd be reminded that they're sinners and that they need to be forgiven. And something needs to happen for their sins to be forgiven. And all that would be great, like two minutes after that all took place, you'd go, But then you'd think, if you had a mind, this is going to happen again next year. Oh no. My sins are just going to pile. They're going to pile up. And then next year, on the Day of Atonement, ah, I'll feel this good again. 
I'll have my conscience cleaned again. It'll feel good again. But, but until then, they'll just sort of pile up. Oh, there's, there's these provisional sacrifices throughout the course of the year, daily sacrifices. I smell something burning. I realize I'm a sinner. I realize that I need to be forgiven my sins. I realize another needs to be taken from me, but, but it doesn't ever seem to end. It always seems to continue on. But there's a sense in which Jesus says, no, 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 this is it. My blood is sufficient. In fact, the author of Hebrews, as he thinks of what Jeremiah has said in this new covenant, as he, as he lays it out, puts it like this. This is uh, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 24. He says, For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, that is not a temple people made, which are copies of the true things. This temple is just a, a copy of something true. It was a shadow. It was a shadow. You know, when you stand and the sun's here and you stand here, your, your shadow's over here, you sort of see a resemblance. But there's a sense in which, you see, there was, there was a, a real temple in glory and, and, and there was a shadow cast on the earth and God said, build it, it'll look like this. And so that shadow, that temple, you see. For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as... The high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But he didn't have to suffer repeatedly. He doesn't have to suffer repeatedly. He doesn't have to suffer continually. He did it. He suffered once, as it will say, for all. But, as it is, he's appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man... To die once, and after that comes the judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So he says, this is it. He did it. That's it. No more sacrifice. It's done. All right? So we can be relieved. We can say, ah, that's it. And so God says, listen, we don't have to remember your sins anymore. Not by way of sacrifice. Not by way of atoning. All of that's done. Now we confess our sins, Jesus said. And we're to confess our sins. But, but that's different, you see. That's the sense of relationship with God. He is our Father. We, we sin, we grieve Him, we know that. So to be restored in fellowship and, and, and all of that, we, 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 we ask for forgiveness. How, how could we not? But as a believer, as we do that, it isn't to say, oh, I, I'm lost, now I'm saved again. And there's that wonderful peace to know that he remembers our sin no more. That doesn't mean God forgets. He's not an idiot. He, he, he's omniscient. But he doesn't remember. See, not remember is different than forgetting, right? When God is said to remember something, he acts accordingly. When God is said to not remember something, that means he doesn't act accordingly, which means when our sin comes up, he doesn't remember it. Therefore, he doesn't act accordingly. To act accordingly would be to judge us. To act accordingly would be to condemn us. But when our sin comes up before him, he doesn't act accordingly. Can I tell you my favorite forgiveness story again? This is the fifth time I've told it in 20 years. I keep track of it. <laughs> I can't remember the last time I told it, but I have a record. I just keep track of this story. I just love this story. I live this, on this story. I heard it more than 20 years ago. Many of you already know it. You're already rehearsing it in your mind. Okay. Okay, now it's a story, little boy, remember? South America, 
True story, I was told, at least by the person who told it to me, said it was true, had read it. I don't have the documentation, even if it isn't true. It's a great story and makes a good point. That's a true point. Mom said, he said, the little boy, they had received a visitation from Jesus. And she was curious about that, went and got to, from a Catholic community, got the, the local priest to come and talk to the boy talk to the boy about whether this was a true visitation of Jesus or not. In the midst of the discussion, the priest was confused, didn't know whether it was a true visitation or not, so he left the boy with this question. Next time Jesus comes, ask him what I confessed in my last confession. The priest left. Some months later, mom calls the priest again, said, saw him again. The priest comes have his talk to see if this little boy really did receive a visitation of Jesus. And so he says to the priest finally, do you remember what I asked you the last time we met? And the boy said, yes. He said, what was that? He said, you asked me to ask Jesus what you confessed in your last confession. And the priest said, yes. He said, what did Jesus say? And the little boy said, Jesus said, I can't remember. I don't know about visitation from Jesus, but the kid could be a theologian. It's true doesn't remember it anymore. And he doesn't need to because it's done. It's been taken care of. The wrath of God is satisfied in Jesus. This is the blood of the new covenant. I shed my blood. You see, the blood of animals can't really suffice of just animals. How can they stand for you and me? But here's one who is human and divine, who stands for us, stands for God. He's worth us all. Therefore, he, his blood, suffices, satisfies for our sin. Rest in that. In this new covenant, Jeremiah, God says, not only will your sins will be forgiven, but because your sins are forgiven, then you'll know me. Because you see, the, the spiritual barrier between us and knowing God is, in fact, our sin. We can't know him until that's dealt with. Now, there's a natural barrier, obviously, for us in knowing God. He's God, and we're not. He's the creator, we're the created. He's infinite, we're finite. Uh, that makes it difficult, right, to really get to know him. So he reveals himself to us. In the context of that, though, still, as he reveals himself to us, the scripture says that we suppress that truth in unrighteousness. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. We suppress that truth in unrighteousness. We really don't want to go there with God because of our sin. Because no matter what else anybody says, no matter what we say, whatever we think is true, the truth of the matter is that deep down inside, we know ultimately that he's holy and we are not. And so that causes people to bend over backwards. To try to avoid a real, true encounter with God. Sometimes it's by being very religious. Sometimes it's by making all the sacrifices. Sometimes it's by doing all this stuff. Because if I can do all this stuff, then maybe God will be pleased with me. And, and I just won't look that way. I'll just trust that he's accepting of me. And that'll be fine. But it may be just blatant. Atheism, he isn't there. Therefore, what does it really matter? Somehow we suppress, we, 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 we bury this sense of the presence of God. But once we know sins are forgiven, once we know that Christ has come, and then you see we can go to him. Because now we're going to him as not simply the judge, but also Savior. Not only the one who condemns, but the one who forgives. Not only the one who is just, but the one who is merciful. And we go to him. And we go in Jesus. Not in ourselves. We go in him. Tagging along with him under his blood, we say, Ah, he died so that I might live now. 
The barrier is broken. I can really know you. And in Jesus, we know him. The scripture tells us that the Lord Jesus came to reveal the Father to us. He said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Meaning, look at me and you'll know God. And so we see the justice of God as he dies on the cross. We see what sin does. We see the judgment of God against sin. We see that we know God's justice. But we also know God's love and mercy as we look on the cross. Because we see therein Jesus taking it for us. So we know God through Jesus. And he says, and that's going to be true for everybody. Everybody in this covenant. You'll all know me. It's not like the old covenant where, 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 where there are priests who have to teach the people. They're special. They're a particular tribe. They're a particular group of people. And, and they're the ones who, who, who mediate this truth of God. And to really know God, you've got to go through that earthly priest or that earthly prophet. They're those, those special ones who, who, who are anointed by God. But, but he says, no, what's true in this whole new covenant is that everybody's going to know me. Though He said, therefore, you will not have to be taught like that. I know if you're thinking, you're thinking, well, then, Bill, why do we pay you? Uh, well, I, I, frankly, I don't know some days. Um, I, I give some of it back. But, um, uh, but you don't pay me to be a priest. You don't pay me to be a mediator. You don't pay me to be the one who has special experiences with God and then I come and tell you. I'm no different than you. We're part of the same body. We have different callings, different functions, different roles. I happen to have this one. But I'm not a priest. Never look at me or anybody like me in that regard. One of my dear friends says in the body of Christ, pastors, teachers are really stomachs. Take some of the glory out of it. We kind of take in the nourishment for the body. I don't even want to think about how stomachs dispense that. So I don't want to apply that to us. That would be, I don't know. I'm not even going to say that. Uh, but that's it. We're not priests in that sense. We don't need people to have special experiences so that, so that, so that they can bring it down and everybody can know God. No, 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 no. In, in one sense, we're all priests. We're a nation of priests. What's that mean? That means that as we're the very presence of God, the church is the very presence of God on the earth. He lives among us. And thus we, in that sense, mediate the gospel to other people. But, but once we say we're all priests, that means none of us are special priests. Okay. So the new covenant is going to be like that. Well, everybody knows God, not just some special ones. Everybody knows God in this covenant. Why? Because everybody's sins are forgiven. So that the barrier to God is, is, is broken, is taken away. We can know him. And we belong to him. There's reconciliation. There's peace. As the scriptures say that he's brought peace through the blood of his cross. Reconciliation with God through the blood of his cross. We're estranged from God, but now we no longer are those who believe in him because Jesus has died and taken all that away. And then he says this, God does, I'm going to do something that's unique in the midst of a covenant. I'm going to ensure that you love me. I'm going to write my law upon your mind. I'm going to put it in your heart. In other words, I'm going to change your heart. It isn't just going to be an outside thing that you read and say, oh, I've got to do that. It's going to be an inside thing. It's going to be something within you. It's going to be a new disposition of heart. Ezekiel spoke of this when he spoke of the new covenant coming. When God says, I'm going to take out that heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh. I'm going to put my spirit within you, Ezekiel says. And I'm going to, God says, I'm going to cause you to walk in my ways. 
But Jesus spoke of this when he was talking to Nicodemus. He spoke about being born again. spoke about being born from above. That there's this new birth that comes that changes the heart. And so God says, here's the new covenant. This is why this covenant will be eternal. This is why this covenant is new. This is why this covenant will, if you will, succeed. Because I'm going to do it all. And I'm going to change people's hearts. They're going to belong to me. They're going to know me. Their sins will be forgiven. They can live in the assurance and the rest of that. Now, how do we know that Jesus did that? He rose from the dead. How do we know that he's the very one who reveals God to us? How do we know he's Emmanuel, God in the flesh? Well, because he said he was going to die and rise again. In fact, the scripture tells us in, in, in Romans in chapter one, this about Jesus and the resurrection. Paul starts out by saying, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, the resurrection of Jesus declares him to be the Son of God, the righteous one. He rose because he had no sin. He rose even because he never lied. And he walked around the earth saying that he was the Son of God. He walked around the earth saying that he was equal to God. He walked around the earth saying he would give his life as a ransom for many. He told his disciples that his blood would be the new covenant that would bring forgiveness. And he rose from the dead and God said, well, you were right. It was not wrong for you to say. There was not a sin for you to say. There was not blasphemy to say. He was declared with power to be the very Son of God. Not only that, but he was raised, the scripture says, for our justification. Romans, in chapter 4, in verse 25, the apostle puts it like this. Of Jesus, he said, who was delivered up for our trespasses, that is, crucified for our trespasses, and raised for our justification. In other words... His resurrection confirmed that God would declare us to be righteous. Why? Because it was the confirmation that God had accepted Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf. So when Jesus died, it wasn't for his own sins. You might remember Martin Luther struggled tremendously with that word from the cross that's a quotation from the Psalms where Jesus says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Luther struggled. Why would the Father forsake the Son? For the Son had no sin. Why would the Father forsake the Son? For the Son had no sin. And then it dawned on Luther, because he read more of the Bible, (coughs) that Jesus didn't die for his own sins, but for the sins of other sinners. And so then Luther says, I get it now. He was forsaken, not for his sin, but for my sin. Now, once Jesus paid the penalty for the sins of sinners, he was free to go. Because there was nothing there to hold him. He didn't die. He wasn't wasn't judged. He wasn't condemned because of his own sin. Jesus, if he hadn't taken on the sins of sinners, the guilt of it would have lived forever. He had no sin. He had no sin. But he died. Why? Because he took on the guilt of sinners. 
But once that guilt was gone, once that penalty had been paid, he was free to go. Thus, as he comes, as he rises, then we know that the Father has accepted his sacrifice on our behalf. We are indeed forgiven. Now, why all of this? Well, it's Easter. But more than that, just to know, really to know, that our faith has reasons. Our faith has reason. It isn't a leap of faith. Now, it would be a leap of faith to believe that I was your Savior. That would be a leap. That would be contrary to everything else you know about me. Or you could just ask my family. Right? That would be a leap. It would be a leap to think that I'm anything special, that I can tell you anything about God that's unique. That would be a, a leap. Be a leap of faith. Because you know that I'm no different than you. I must tell you, it's a scary thing when you wake up one morning and realize that you're older than the President of the United States. <laughs> and then you realize you're older than your doctor. In fact, you're older than almost everybody you have to trust. <laughs> and they realize that the reason that that's scary is that you realize that they're just exactly like you are, except they had a different major in college. They're exactly the same. Oh, well, they're, they're younger. <laughs> but that doesn't really help your confidence that much. So it's a leap of faith to trust someone just like you. But we're talking about Jesus. You see, everything rests for us upon Him. Is He who He claimed to be? Did He do what He claimed to have done? That's the question. And I have to tell you, it's no leap to trust Him. Is it a leap to trust in one who raised the dead? Is it a leap? to trust in one who gave sight to the blind? Is it a leap to trust a one who gave hearing to the deaf, legs to the lame, who fed thousands with just a little bit of fish and a little bread, the, the, the one who can calm the storm? Is it a leap to trust one who rose from the dead? Is it a leap? Is it a leap to trust when he says that we're sinners when we compare our lives against his. Is it a leap to believe you're a sinner when you look at your life and you look at Jesus' life? Is it, is it a leap to, to think that you're in trouble because of your sin when you look at your life compared to his life? Is it a leap to believe that he died for your sins rather than his own? When you look at his life, why would he need to die? Why would he need to be crucified? Not that one. Is it a leap to think that he for you and me, that we deserved what he got? Is it a leap to think that this very one who died and rose isn't the very son of God? I don't think it's a leap at all. So let me ask you not to leap. Let me ask you to believe 
in this one who said, This is the new covenant in my blood. That your sins may be forgiven. That you may know the Lord. That you may belong to him. That your hearts may be changed. Let's pray. Father in heaven. I pray for me and for us that we can be a people who trust, people who believe, not some leap, but that we believe because of Jesus, how dishonoring to him to think that it would have to be a leap, to believe something no one in their right mind would believe, but rather when we encounter him that it should be that for which comes to us, that yes, we should trust in this one, for in whom else could we trust other than this one? who satisfies every need that we have. So, Father, here we are today to take great confidence and comfort in the fact that Jesus is risen. We know that you've exalted him. We know that he's at your right hand, ruling and reigning over all things for the sake of his church. And, God, as he rules, we know that he's interceding for us. He lives even now to make certain that all that he did is fulfilled and fulfilled in us. And we know, God, that he intercedes as one who, who knows exactly how we feel, for he knows our weakness. Tempted in every way as we have been yet without sin, he. So God, we come through him knowing that we're accepted by you because of what he has done. And as we come to his throne, it's a throne of grace and mercy. So we come as those in need, and we pray that while you have called us to live holy lives, lives that honor you and reflect you. We know that we live in a world that tempts us to go our own way or the ways of others, uh, that the evil one enforces these temptations and they're still residing in us a desire to follow other ways. So God, we pray that you would strengthen us to resist all of these temptations that we may follow after you and you alone. God, many are experiencing weaknesses and difficulties in relationships and marriage and family and friendships. Heal wounds, God. Give us grace to love and to restore relationships. Father, many are experiencing weakness in body. There is much sickness that slows us. There is disease that debilitates us and threatens to take our lives. Father, we pray that you'd bring healing and awareness of your presence. And even though difficult times have come, still sins are forgiven. Still we know you. Still we belong to you. Still our hearts are inclined towards you. Some are grieving for loss, provide comfort. Some are lonely, bring friendship and companionship, an abiding sense of your presence. Some live in the fear of the future, give an awareness of your rule over all things, your wisdom in all matters, your love for us, that we might find peace. God, we lay our lives before you. And ask these things and so much more. In the name of our Lord Jesus, whose blood has bought our forgiveness. Whose blood has bought our very lives. So that now we're forgiven. So that now we know you. So that now we belong to you. So that now we are inclined to follow after you. Be with us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Please.
stand for the benediction. Please receive this as God's benediction. And now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good thing for doing his will, working in us that which is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Christ is triumph, Christ is triumph.